It was in October of 2019, just a few months, uh, as we know, before the world went a little crazy with the whole COVID pandemic thing, that we as a church began going through this marvelous little epistle of Philippians together at any point when we were taking a break from the Gospel of Luke. And now, here, a little more than three years and 36 sermons later, we come to the end of the 104 verses that make up this little part of the Pauline corpus. And this being the 37th sermon now covering these last four verses. And while there have been several key themes throughout the book, of course, joy is one of them. You're rejoicing, having come up many times. It's one of the things that this book is well known for, as well as the theme of example, Christian example, the theme of Christian thinking and having a Christian mindset. Those have certainly been prominent. But what has been probably the most prominent recurring theme, even a theme within the other themes, has been the theme of union. Namely, every Christian's union in Christ, and then the resulting unity with one another which that union produces. And it was for me such a kind act of providence of God in my life to be studying this book with these themes during those chaotic times in our nation and world that we saw in 2020 and beyond, as we have witnessed Just in the last few years, our nation become more divided than it's ever been, and even seen so much division within evangelicalism. To continually be brought back to this book, and to be reminded of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, and the indescribable reality of our union and our identity in Him that puts all earthly trials into their proper perspective. And as a result of that union, the unity that we as believers have with one another. What a blessing for me just to be reminded as those in the world kind of seem to tear each other apart, to be reminded of just the precious gift that we have here in this church. The last three years in this book have been such a blessing to me. I hope it's as I've come up here during those little breaks from the Gospel of Luke that it's been a blessing to you also. This morning, as we come to the end of this year and to the end of this letter, we are going to once again return to this theme as Paul brings this book to an appropriate conclusion. So for our text this morning, we're going to be reminded of four essential principles of the Christian life. Four essential principles of the Christian life. None of these principles that we're going to talk about today are new. They're all things that we have seen before, not only in Philippians, but frequently throughout Scripture. But it is so appropriate that we see these principles revisited one final time at the end of this book. Paul has just spent verses 10 through 19 of chapter 4 rejoicing in their gift, in the Philippians' monetary gift and in their partnership in his ministry. But now as he closes, he wants to leave off reminding them of some of the major themes that he has been teaching on up until this point. Though at first we might just dismiss these verses as a typical closing to a Pauline letter. Most of the time when we're 
reading through our Bibles. That's kind of what we do. We see that last final greeting section and we're just on to Colossians. We might just dismiss them as typical closing to a Pauline letter. It's just like all the rest of his letters. The words and the phrases that he uses at the end, though, are just as purposeful and just as intentionally chosen as the rest of the words throughout the book. And so we are wise to pay attention to them. And these really are four essential principles that we're going to be looking at that represent really basic Christian living. They are so basic, in fact, that to the extent that you are experiencing in your life any frustration, any anxiety, any friction between others or sinful practice, it is almost certainly because you are in some way neglecting or diminishing one or more of these principles. And thinking rightly about these things that we're going to look at today will result in you living with the joy that we see constantly displayed in this book as you continuously rejoice in all of the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus and in the precious gift of the unity of the body of Christ. So these four principles that are going to be our four points today, they are number one, the glory due to God. Number two, the standing of every saint. Number three, the power of the gospel. Number four, the grace of the Lord. You'll hear them all again as we go through them. So with that, will you look with me then one, just one final time to the book of Philippians and let's see these points together in Philippians 4, verses 20 through 23. Paul closes his book, his letter to the Philippians, with these words. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All of the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So in verse 20, we see Paul close out kind of the main body of the epistle with this little short one-verse doxology. And it is in that verse that we're going to take our first point today. The glory due to God. The glory due to God. And I know for some of us, the temptation is to immediately tune out until I'm done with this point. Because you, you hear something along the lines of the glory of God, when you hear that as a point, you, you're like, oh yeah, yep, yep, I got that one. The glory of God, you know, that's the one thing that we're all about more than anything else. It's the ultimate end for why God does everything. I know this literally comes up all the time in these sermons. I, I know this one. So I'm, I'm reformed, soli deo gloria, got it. This is that concept that the Armenians really need to grasp. So I hope any of them in here are listening. That's what we do. So you guys listen to point one, and then I'll come back in at point two. However, however, rather than causing us to grow kind of callous to the subject, the fact that it is repeated so often in Scripture, and the very phrase that Paul chooses to use to close out the main body of this marvelous letter should indicate to us that this is a concept that we ought never to grow callous toward, that we can never remind ourselves enough of. So, throughout the book, Paul has been giving them commands to 
live by, calling them to follow certain examples and reminding them of the promises of God that are theirs through Christ. And then in the verse right before this, he speaks of his confidence that God will supply all of their needs according to his riches. In that verse, verse 19, that we looked at last time, that, is certainly, that, that certainly mirrors the confidence that he had about their sanctification from chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, because Paul understands that the sanctification that he so desperately desires to see the Philippians grow in, the very desire that is at the heart of his motivation to write all of his letters, because he is confident that since they are in Christ, they will certainly continue to grow in all of these things, that this letter and, and that, that this letter that he's writing is merely the physical means that God is going to, to use to, to accomplish these things. And because Paul knows that even though they might be experiencing trials and suffering of different sorts, the same God that has, pro, that has faithfully provided for him and his ministry, whether he has been in prison or free, the same God who has in fact used the gift of these same Philippians to this end, It is this God who will certainly provide every single member of this suffering little church. He'll provide them with all that they need to accomplish every one of His purposes that He has for them from this moment until the moment where each of them takes their last breath. All that Paul desires to see in them because of how much he loves them will be accomplished perfectly in them according to the perfect timing and power of the omniscient and omnipotent God who loves them even more than He does. And He knows that. And that is just as true for each of us as it is for the church in Philippi. And therefore, it is totally appropriate and even necessary that Paul closes out this letter by calling them and by calling us to give glory to this God. And the, the Greek transitional particle, day, is, is there, um, but it remains untranslated in the ESV for whatever reason. Uh, but most translations have the word now there at the beginning of verse 20 to indicate that this is Paul. He, now, I'm bringing this all to a close. Now, to our God. It's, it's a final thing. It's a good transition. He's saying, with everything That has been said. With everything that I have said, all of the promises, all of the commands that we have seen and that I have told you about throughout this book that will be used to bring every one of us to greater fellowship with God and one another through Christ. With all of that said, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And in that phrase, to our God and Father, the definite article is there. He does use the definite article for God, which usually goes untranslated in places like this because it sounds weird in the English, but he really is saying to the, our God and Father. It is a powerful reminder, especially in a culture that, in, in this culture that uh, the Philippians lived in, that believed in a pantheon of gods, that it is a powerful reminder that we are 
talking about the one true God. The one true God. We're not picking one of the gods. Apollo, the god of the sun, or Jupiter or Zeus, the god of the sky and rain, or Neptune or Poseidon, the god of the sea. We're not just picking one of them and running with them. We are talking about the singular living God who not only controls the sun, the sky, and the sea, but created them out of nothing also. And it is this God who is to receive glory forever and ever. This is the God who receives glory forever and ever. And what is most amazing, something again that we see all the time in Scripture but should never cease to amaze us, is that this God, the one true and living God, here Paul attaches a plural pronoun that indicates possession. He is not merely the one true and living God that stands outside of everything He is our one true and living God. He is our God. He is our the God. And our Father. The one true and living God is also our Father. This is even more amazing. He uses the common conjunction, the common Greek conjunction, chi, that's used all the time, means and usually, and connects the term for the one true God to the word Father. That shouldn't happen. That's amazing. Even without expanding on all of the other wonderful promises that are ours in Christ that Paul has already expounded upon in this letter, even if they were all forgotten, just the unbelievable truth that we can call on the one true and living God as our Father, that we corporately, all those whom He has saved through Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters, together the true children of the living God, able to call on Him as our Father, that alone is enough for us to cry alongside Paul, yes and amen, all glory forever and ever be to our God and Father. So in light of just this truth, just this unbelievable thing that He has done as the Creator of the universe, adopting those who had rebelled against Him adopting them, those who have willingly become His enemies, adopting us, adopting them through the blood of His Son to be His true children for all of eternity. In light of this, how could there be, even for a second, any glory given to anyone else without us, His children, screaming out, no, no, not even for a second. Our God and Father must receive all glory forever and ever. And that term forever and ever could could literally mean, it means literally something along the lines of unto the ages of ages. One commentator said, there is no greater expression for eternity that can be found in all of the Greek language. And that is... True, absolutely. When we think of what God has done for us, for for there to ever be an end to His receiving glory. Think of this, for Him to merely receive praise and thanksgiving and glory for the next million centuries, and then for us to just stop and go on to something else, that would be more unrighteous and ungrateful than anything that we could imagine. 
So imagine if you were to like readjust your budget this holiday season and go without meals and determine not to buy anything for yourself for the next year so that you could get your kid something really special for Christmas. Not that you should do that. You should not. Not that you should do that. But if you did and your child just opened that gift up and went, meh, and then went back to their room and went to bed, For God to not be the recipient of glory for even one second throughout all of eternity would be far more sickening than that, far more unthinkable, far more unrighteous than that. And so Paul ends this verse with that familiar word, amen. He says that and he says, amen. That's a word derived from the Hebrew meaning to be firm. So it literally means something like confirmed or so be it. This is the appropriate acknowledgement that all of God's God's, uh, good work on our behalf to benefit us in all the ways that have been seen throughout this letter to the glory of God, and that is the way that it is no matter what, for all time and forever. Amen. God has done this. God is to receive glory forever and ever. Amen. And saying that word would result in all those reading or hearing this letter to respond with the same, with a similar, amen. In other words, nothing further is to be added or subtracted from that statement. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. We affirm the truth of that statement exactly as it is said. Commentator John Kitchen appropriately says of this word, of that word amen, in this particular place. Thus the apostle, as he closes his letter, invites the entire membership of the Philippian church, fractured and fearful as they may presently be, to unite themselves with one voice and one word around the glorious God they serve through the enabling of His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, even though the refrain of to the glory of God alone is fairly common around here, and so it should be, we must guard against allowing ourselves to become numb to the reality that God alone deserves all glory for all good that we ever see or experience. The glory of God must be a principle that we are constantly reminding ourselves of and living for constantly reminding ourselves of all of the reasons that he deserves and in fact must receive glory forever and ever. Can you imagine the effect it would have on our everyday living, our ability to constantly rejoice if we could just manage to the best of our ability and our finite fleshly minds to continually force ourselves to think about the fact That the one true God who has made Himself our Father deserves all glory forever. If we could clearly see this truth through our fallen eyes and keep it there, how that would change the way we live. And then if we could constantly remember all the reasons that this is true, the type of effect that that would have on us in every trial that we have, in every argument we get into. That is why Paul... And all of Scripture continually reminds us of the glory due to God. So that is point one. 
That's the first principle for us to keep in mind, the glory due to God, and that brings us to point two, the standing of every saint. The standing of every saint. Look again at verses 21 and 22. Verses 21 and 22, where Paul says in his final greetings, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. This is our longest point because it's in these verses that Paul does the most unique kind of stuff. It's in these verses and through these words that Paul once again reminds the Philippians of the love and warmth, the unity that is to be the mark of all relationships within the body of Christ. This is not Paul simply telling the elders of the church, hey, say hi to everyone for me. That's not what he's doing. This word for greed is much more, it's a much more hospitable, it has a much more hospitable and affectionate meaning. One lexicon even uses the word embrace to describe what Paul wants to be extended to all believers on his behalf here. And notice that this is an actual imperative. This is actually the last imperative in the book. This is a command. In the closing of the letter, this is something that must take place. Paul sees this, that, that this must take place, that it is of immediate importance to him that they do this. And this is a common word used among Christians to describe the familial warmth that was to be the mark of their interactions and concern for one another. It has the common meaning of to welcome affectionately or to welcome gladly. Therefore, coldness in the heart of one Christian towards another should be unthinkable within the church. And we'll look at why that is the case here more in a moment. But here we do need to see that Paul is extending fervent love towards every Christian individually in the Philippian church. So, In this verse, there's an unexpected bit of grammar as Paul is not saying, greet the saints or greet the church for me, but he deliberately changes up the language to make it so that he is demanding that those reading the letter, most likely the leaders in the church, make sure that each one of the saints individually knows that Paul greets them by by name, but personally. So you contrast this to the first verse in the letter where he says just that. He says, all the saints. This is constructed differently. And this is the only place in here where Paul uses the singular for the word saint. This is deliberate. He really does intend for each saint in the church to understand themselves to be personally greeted by Paul. To feel that personal affection. That personal embrace. Each one needs to feel that they have been greeted by him personally. This is the difference between me coming up here and, and if Paul had said that to me, me coming up here and saying something like, Grace Church, Paul greets you. And there would be something special in that, right? There is a, a sense even where it emphasizes the unity that we have. We are one body. One body in Christ. But what is happening here is more like saying, Rob, Paul greets you. Betsy, Paul greets you. And going around 
the church, and on and on until the elders have moved throughout the entire Philippian church, making sure that each person understood that Paul extends a spiritual embrace to him or her personally. Now, why would Paul do this? Because it would have been totally appropriate to just send a general warm greeting to the entirety of the church as a unified whole as he does in other places. But it seems like Paul's pastoral heart and concern for the situation in Philippi is still informing his writing, even in these last couple of verses. Because expressing the greeting this way is going to have an especially powerful effect when you consider that one of the main purposes behind this letter was to reinforce and encourage church unity and to heal divisions in the church. The specific words and phrases that Paul uses here are one kind of final nail in the coffin of any type of of disagreement or dissension or division that could possibly threaten the unity in this church within the hearts of each individual that he may or may not know about. He is making sure that they know yet again that he does not take a side in their divisions and instead greets each one of them without distinction. And this would have had the effect of minimizing all of their squabbles and disagreements and might have at that time maybe seemed like such a big deal to them. Paul here is demonstrating just how relatively unimportant those things are in light of all the eternal truths that he has been teaching throughout the letter and especially in light of the fact that each one of them individually is a saint set apart by God himself. So if you remember, and you can look there if you want, back at, at the beginning of chapter 4 in verses 2 and 3, Paul addresses a specific, apparently a public disagreement between two women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche. And I know for us, that seems like such a long time ago. We looked at that, when I looked back, we looked at that passage in April. But keep in mind that the original audience, including these two women, are hearing this read all together at once. So they just heard this in 4.2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. They just heard the Apostle Paul use up ink in one of his inspired letters to rebuke them by name for their public disagreement. This was only about two minutes ago for them. And now they're hearing this at the end. So think of the effect that this would have on them and on anyone else in the congregation who has something against someone else. Paul is saying, greet Yodia, give her my warmest affection. And greet Sintike, give her my warmest affection. It's the ultimate kind of, you are sisters in Christ together. What exactly is it that you think is so important that it should rise to the level where you think you are justified in looking down on the other or proving that you are right and they're wrong. Your sister's in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ Jesus, is there, isn't it? When you look at, look at, look at 4.21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul lays out that which is of absolute, most foundational importance about every member of this church, and that is that each one is one who is in Christ Jesus. 
Paul uses some form of this phrase more than 20 times throughout this letter, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord, to continually remind them of this truth. Again, it just puts all the disagreements and arguments between brothers and sisters in Christ into perspective. So if you remember, look at 4.3, what he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. In 4.3, we saw that Paul is probably asking one of these very same elders, who he's just told to greet each saint in the Lord, to also be involved in helping to mend the rift between these two ladies. So think about the situation. How immediately after this letter is read publicly, how this true companion is going to go to these women, bring them together, and then say, maybe even in each other's presence, something along the lines of this. The Apostle Paul, our dear brother, who is at this moment in chains for preaching the very gospel that has reconciled us to the living God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, offers his most sincere greeting to you, Iodia, his true sister in Christ. And the Apostle Paul, our dear brother, who is at this moment in chains for preaching the very gospel that has reconciled us to the living God, our Father, through Jesus Christ, offers his most sincere greeting to you, Sintike, his true sister in Christ. Now with that out of the way, ladies, who would like to make their case against their sister first? This is the scope through which we are to view each other. When we have the same understanding of every saint as Paul does, then we filter every personality quirk, every difference of opinion, no matter how strongly we might feel about the way someone acts or thinks or lives. If they are in Christ along with us, then all of those things should have almost no effect on how we view them other than maybe helping us to better understand how best to love and serve them. And if that isn't convicting enough, there's still more to think about when it comes to how we relate to one another based on the words that Paul uses here. Because also by using the singular for saint here, not only is Paul demonstrating that he doesn't want to make a distinction among all the brothers and sisters in the church when it comes to his greeting, but it also reminds them of the high value given to each individual by God Himself. This is a reminder to us of what the term saint actually means. The way that the Bible uses the term saint is far different than how the Catholic Church and our culture have come to understand it. Saints are not those who have achieved some sort of special higher state of sanctification. Someone whose personal righteousness has exceeded the righteousness of everyone else. That is not a saint. In the Catholic Church, it's essentially something that someone might earn if they are able to live in such a way that their righteousness gets them to a certain level, the level of sainthood. Many times people, even Christians, will say something along the lines of, well, I'm no saint. And they'll do that before they say or do something as kind of an excuse for why they do what they do or continue on in their pattern of sin. I'm no saint. 
Can't expect much from me. This type of language just continues to perpetuate that unbiblical understanding of the word saint. As if it is actually something that is within the ability of the individual to achieve. Saint is the word hagion, coming from the word hagios, which the, the word holy. Holy means to be set apart. And when we are talking about saints, we are referring to those who have been set apart for God. And who is it that sets them apart? It's not us, right? We don't set ourselves apart. We're totally unable to set ourselves apart. We are set apart for a relationship with God by God. He is the one who does it. We are saints because of His action, not our action. We are totally unable to make ourselves holy. God has made us holy by imputing our sin upon Christ on the cross and then by imputing the holy life of Jesus Christ onto us. We are not holy because of our own righteous acts. We are holy because we have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift. That is what makes us holy. God is the one who sets us apart. God is the one who makes us holy. And He is the one who enables us to continue to grow in sanctification. The growth that you have seen in your life since coming to Christ, the sins that used to define you that no longer do, maybe the things that once enslaved you that are now things that maybe just pop up every once in a while, or even things that you don't even think about anymore. It is the same God who has made you positionally holy through the imputed righteousness of Christ that has also given you the gift of His Spirit that empowers you to live a holy life and become more and more like this same Christ, even in your current sin-cursed body. And He's going to do this until the day of your completion and glorification. Being called a saint is a reminder of the work that God has done for you. It is not a commendation of your effort. It is a reminder of God's efficacious work on your behalf. So then, the command to greet every saint with a sincere affection then makes absolute logical sense for any true Christian. And it's actually in that logic that we would feel rebuked if we didn't. Because when you think about the definition of what a saint is, what kind of arrogance, what kind of ungratefulness of our own salvation would we have to have to not be able to do this? What else could explain a refusal to treat with affection one whom God has chosen to set apart as His own child? When we hold grudges against one another, when we look at a brother or sister in Christ with anything but the type of love that wants what is best for him or her and is willing to sacrifice for that person's good, just think about what that's actually saying about us. Because it's kind of easy, isn't it, to to hold a grudge or to have a problem with someone, to do those things when we think of each other as that guy or that person or that lady. And that's why it's so important. And if you don't use this language, you should. So important, it's so right for us to constantly refer to one another as brother 
and sister when we're talking to each other and as saints when we're talking about each other. Keep that in our minds. It helps to keep us thinking rightly about who these people are rather than just making decisions about how much we are willing to invest in someone based on the same worldly standards that everyone else does. You know, if our personalities click, if we have the same interests, this relationship's going to add anything to my life, or if, if the way they act toward me should actually have any bearing on how I treat them at all. That's a worldly concept. So it's one thing to say in your heart, oh, I really can't stand that guy. But think what it means to say in your heart, oh, I really can't stand that saint. Which is the reality of that statement, whether you think it is or not, when you say something like that about a fellow believer. The spirit inside of you should push back against that. Oh, that, that person over there? Can't stand that guy? The one whom God chose before the foundation of the world to adopt as his son? That guy? The one whom God reconciled to himself through the blood of his precious son? Whom he put his son to death for? The one whom God has placed the seal of his own Holy Spirit upon? That's the lady you can't stand? The one whom Jesus Christ is right now preparing an eternal home for, the one who was once an enemy of God, but is now and forever God's own precious child, who God also has made a co-heir with Christ. The one whom He has chosen to treat in the same merciful and gracious way that He has treated you. You You can't stand that guy, huh? When you really think through the entire reality of this situation, that this person is a saint, and they are that by the work of God. The only way to refuse to love such a one as God in Christ has loved you is because you've started to somehow adopt some sort of Catholic mindset and started believing that you being a saint somehow does have something to do with you. Or maybe that you're just not thinking rightly about the cost of your own salvation. Or maybe you've just never actually known salvation. Really believing that we are saints together, brothers and sisters together. Not just using those words, but thinking about everything behind the reality of those words is the key to never failing, never failing to love one another endlessly. To really living out that unity that we have in Christ. This is why we are expected to quickly be able to work out differences or things that we might have against one another before coming to the communion table because of the logic of this. And so for us, among other things, the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder in case we forget that, oh yeah, I have no good reason to hold anything against a fellow saint of God, one whom God has chosen to set apart unto Himself. How could I, being who I am? And that's why in commenting on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, I do not think that he can be a Christian who has no knowledge or care about his fellow church members. Knowing that someone is a brother or sister in Christ, a fellow saint of God, should immediately put that person in such an exalted position in your thinking of them. Because it's the position that God has placed them in. 
And it's only through that grid, the grid of one whom God loves so much that Jesus died for them, that you have a relationship with them. And your relationship builds out of that. Just the fact that they are hagios, that they are saints set apart by God, tells you everything, everything you need to know about them when it comes to how you should think of them. And this is the reason that the other greetings that Paul gives on behalf of others are so informal. So again, look at verses 21 in the beginning of 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Generally in his letters, in most of his letters, Paul identifies those who are with him, extending greetings on their behalf. Especially if guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus were with him, as we believe they were. Why wouldn't he say, Timothy greets you, Epaphroditus greets you? They know these men, and they would love to hear of their personal greetings along with anyone else who might be there. But Paul confines the emphasis. He keeps the emphasis on the fact that they are fellow brothers that are with me. That is all that needs to be known about them. Not whether or not they actually personally know you. Just the fact that they are part of the same family of God means that they care exceedingly about you. And to drive that home even further, he just goes ahead and says, in fact, all the saints greet you. All of the saints greet you. These are people who certainly only know of you, but they greet you. They only know of you, but what it is that they do know is that you, like they, have been made saints by God Himself. And that is enough to cause them to want to offer this expression of sincere affection. So young people, pay attention to this in your life. If you're one of those high schoolers or maybe, maybe later middle schoolers who is wondering about whether or not you are saved, maybe you can mentally acknowledge everything in the gospel. That's good. Good for you. But one thing that will really help you to diagnose whether or not you have truly come to a right understanding of your own sin and therefore truly repented and joyfully embraced the forgiveness offered in Christ is for you to examine just how easy it is for you to look down on another Christian. Is it easy for you to place yourself above others, to hold grudges against others, to think lower of them than yourself? to make the decision that someone really isn't worth your time. Because it is very difficult to imagine one who truly understands all that God has done for them in setting them apart unto Himself to then be able to turn around and look down on someone else. You can look no further than Travis's recent sermon on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. How can one go from desperately crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then turning and looking at another and saying, but, but don't ask me to have it for that guy. So Paul gives this command that should come naturally for any saint of God to treat every saint in the affectionate way that recognizes just who God has declared this person to be, no matter what I might think of them. And he shows that he extends that affection to each of them. He extends that affection to each of them. The brothers with him extend that affection, as well as every saint. And then he says, especially those of Caesar's household. 
So look at that phrase again right there at the end of verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. And that is where we find our third point for today, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. So why does he single out the saints from Caesar's household in a stronger way than he even does the brothers that are with him? Right? And he really is singling them out. The word translated as especially is a superlative of the adverb mala, meaning very much or exceedingly. It means most of all. So of all the saints greeting them, he is drawing their attention to this special group because he expects that this greeting in particular is going to have a profound effect on them. And there is uncertainty about who is meant by those of Caesar's household. It might include members of Caesar's family, but at the very least, it is a reference to those who keep Caesar's household running. So soldiers who are maybe stationed in the palace, perhaps slaves or, or other close associates, but you can imagine that it takes many people to keep Caesar's household running, to keep his palace working. And Paul is extending a special greeting from these fellow saints who are within the household of Caesar himself to the church in Philippi. And this would be such a special encouragement for the Philippians when you keep in mind what we have talked about before, that, that the context of this, of this letter makes it clear that the Philippians are suffering. They are experiencing trials. And some of that suffering is no doubt a result of some type of persecution from the Roman government. Nero is Caesar at this time, and he liked to persecute Christians. And we don't have time to go into detail on this now, but maybe you remember from some of the much earlier sermons uh, from Philippians that the city of Philippi was a proud Roman colony. Because of the history of the city, it took great pride in its standing as a Roman city. Therefore, there is every reason to think from history that the cult of emperor worship was strong in Philippi. We mentioned this before, but by the time of the writing of this letter, the primary titles for Caesar were both Lord and Savior. And this is why Christians ran into such difficulty and persecution wherever emperor worship was strong, because they would refuse to use those titles to refer to Nero. We've even pointed out a couple in a couple of places in this epistle where Paul seems to clearly be going after this type of thinking with the titles he uses to address Christ. So there is little doubt that much of the suffering and the trials that the Philippians are dealing with, and maybe it's perhaps the reason that they are not financially well off, as we referenced in the last passage that we looked at, it might be directly related to the difficulty with which they were able to participate in the economy because of their refusal to accept the common stance on who Caesar is. But in addition to this, we also know that Paul, at this very moment that he is writing this letter, is a prisoner of Caesar. He has been chained to a Roman guard and has been totally robbed of his freedom, solely because he recognizes Jesus Christ and not Nero as Lord and Savior. So you can imagine 
As this letter is being read to the congregation in Philippi, as, as the letter draws to a close and Paul says this, there would no doubt be smiles on the faces of everyone listening. Maybe even some shouts of joy and some laughter. It's kind of like a surprise guest being added in at the last second. Because what this demonstrates is that what Paul said at the beginning of the letter is absolutely true. And it demonstrates that the gospel that we proclaim is powerful. And in, in look back at 112. So in chapter 1, verse 12, you can, you can see Paul say, as he's addressing his chains, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He then goes on to say that his imprisonment has been an encouragement for other brothers to be more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. So you see that if you were to keep reading that section. But in that section, we are only told of the faithful proclamation of the gospel that has come about because of Paul's chains. We're not actually told about any fruits. And so someone who might be a little cynical might be listening to that. What Paul's saying in chapter 1 and saying, ah, oh, that Paul, he's, there he is just trying to glibly put a good spin on everything. I'm, I'm sure it is just great that the great apostle, the great missionary and founder of churches is chained to a Roman guard. That is just way better than being free to go out and start new churches. Sure, sure, Paul. But here at the end of the chapter, it's like Paul is saying, I greet you. These brothers with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And even though this next group is technically covered in the category of all the saints, he goes on to say, oh yeah, and you know who else especially greets you? Those who are the evidence that Nero can persecute you and throw me in prison, but he cannot stop the advancement of the gospel. Because the gospel has power. They greet you also. Nero may presently be ruler over the most powerful nation, and he may be able to throw me in prison and put me to death, but he is utterly powerless to stop the gospel. He may rule Rome, but he cannot even rule over the hearts of those in his own household. Jesus Christ takes any that he wants, even out of the household of Caesar, and he sets them apart as his own saints, just like each one of us. It is like there is this eagerness in Paul, like he's been waiting to get to this, throughout the, to tell these Philippians, be attentive to this. You have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ within the household of Nero himself. And even though they don't know you personally, they know of you, and they think fondly of you, and they pray for you, and they want you to know of their union in Christ with you. And this is undeniable proof that Christ and not Caesar, is Lord. And the gospel that He has given us to proclaim is powerful. And beloved, that is true now of us also. Yes, yes, we live in this God-hating culture that calls us to worship and give our lives to almost anything other than the living God. And the more we refuse their ideology and their priorities, the more they shun us and view us as out of touch, as on the wrong side of history, adherent, you know, your adherence to a dead, dying religion. 
But friends, just come to the baptism services. Hear the testimonies of how this same gospel that powerfully saved people out from under the household of Caesar still powerfully saves people out from under a culture that has totally dismissed the church as a dead relic of the past. Come and see the power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, go out with each other. Talk to each other. Listen to each other's testimonies about what, has, what God has done in your lives and what He is doing in your lives. Talk about these things. How the gospel is still powerfully working in you to throw off sins that were once life-dominating. How it brings about reconciliation in marriages and relationships that otherwise would have no business being restored. The gospel is powerful. Take every opportunity to remind yourself of this third point, that we must never forget the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our fourth and final point, the fourth principle we're going to look at that is so essential for Christians to always keep in mind the grace of our Lord. The grace of our Lord. Look now with me at that final verse in Philippians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This verse is similar to how Paul closes many of his letters. In fact, it's exactly the same as in Philemon. And very close to the end of Galatians. But he does include a statement wishing for the grace of the Lord to be on his hearers or his readers in almost, in, and actually in all of his letters. Somewhere in there. But just because Paul uses similar language frequently does not make it thoughtless. But rather, it shows us just how important it is. And of course, it makes perfect sense that this is the way that Paul would choose to end his letters. This one in particular. Because what we see in it, kind of it's a mini reminder of what should govern the entirety of the believer's life. The grace of the Lord is the most important concept to us. It is what defines us. It is the very air that every Christian breathes. And Paul does something a little unique here by using what is to be, what we should understand as, a, as what's called a distributive singular in the phrase, your spirit. So it's the plural word for your, but the singular word for spirit. So what this does is kind of similar to the language that he has been using throughout this little section. He is emphasizing the grace of the Lord that is to rest on each individual believer rather than just saying it is the church as a whole. Each of us as Christians has known nothing but the grace of God toward us throughout the entirety of our lives. Even if you are in here today and you do not know Christ, the fact that you are breathing and in here today demonstrates that you also have never been treated as your sins deserve. None of us have been ever been treated as our sins deserve, not for a second. And if you're in Christ, because of Jesus, you never will be. Ever. You'll never know the wrath of God. You'll never know the anger of God. Christian, you will never know anything other than the grace of your Lord to you. You'll never know anything but that for the rest of your life and on throughout all of eternity. 
And the reason Paul is always telling Christians some version of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you is because it really is the key to all Christian living. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God toward us. It is the the funnel through which God's love comes to us. Whereas we, as people, can love others because of things that they might do for us or because of how they might make us feel or because over time they've just grown on us or because we've gone through the same experiences together. Maybe we grow in our love. But the love of God for us is always through grace. It is never any kind of responding to us. Only, that's the only way that a perfectly holy God can love undeserving sinners. It is through the grace of God that we are saved. God chose to ransom an undeserving people to himself. It is through the grace of our Lord that this happened. As he dies a death that we deserve, he dies it in our place. After living a life of perfect obedience that was required of us, but we fell so far short of. It is His grace that sustains us every day, moment by moment, that not only provides for us physically, but spiritually as well. It's His grace that strengthens us through every trial, through all our suffering. It's through His grace that we're sanctified that sins in our lives are put to death and we become more and more like Him. It is grace that saves us. As the hymn says, it's grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will bring us home. And of course, it is to an eternal home that He is graciously preparing for us so that we can spend eternity continually further experiencing the infinite blessing of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since one of Paul's chief concerns for this church is the end of every hint of division and the embracing of the union they have together in Christ, then all the more reason that Paul would make these his final words to them. In the words of one commentator, all of Paul's inward strength lies behind his pen as he sends this final prayer of grace, for he knows that apart from it, the reconciliation and unity he has pursued from the opening words of the letter will not be possible. And why is this? Because those who know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who really understand themselves to be living in it, they will not be able to help but be those from whom that same grace flows out into the lives of others. They won't be able to help it. So, beloved brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we come to the end of this precious epistle of joy. We need to know that if we will faithfully, in our hearts and our minds, magnify the four principles that we looked at today, if we'll magnify those in our lives, if we will let them govern our actions and our attitudes, then we too will walk through this life into eternity rejoicing in a way that is only explainable by the grace of God in the life of one who lives with a constant awareness of the glory due to our God and strives to bring it to Him. One who understands the standing of every saint and loves and ministers to each one of them, knowing that God has set them apart unto Himself 
just like he has to us. And one who knows from firsthand experience the saving and sanctifying power of the gospel and therefore never stops proclaiming it to himself or to others. And to those who truly know and never stop being humbled and amazed by the grace of our Lord. If we can keep those principles at the forefront of our minds, we will not be able to help but rejoice continually. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word and for what we've seen in this section of Scripture. God, and I do pray for our church that we would be marked by these principles, that we would live for your glory, that we would point to you, give glory to you in all that we do in all of our lives, that we would strive to bring you glory. God, that we would be those who, who are so humbled and taken back by the, the gospel that has been applied to us, that we would understand and believe and see the standing of every saint in this room, in our church, and we live our lives selflessly to love and minister to each one, knowing that that is someone, each person in here, each member of Grace Church is one whom you have set apart for yourself, and that we would know and experience firsthand the power of the gospel. That we would proclaim it to everyone that we can, believers and unbelievers alike, knowing that it is through that that lies the power to change dead hearts to living hearts. And Lord, that we would never stop being humbled, never stop being amazed by the grace that we have experienced and that we continue to experience and that we only ever experience constantly from you. And that these things would drive us to live each day, every day, rejoicing in the truth, longing to be obedient to you and to live our lives for you. And it's in the name of your precious Son that we pray all of these things. Amen.